I've uh, been doing the math. I see that the brother Will is going to be preaching from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. So I've done the conversion to Bob preaching time. And best I got it figured out, we should be getting out at 4 o'clock Tuesday week. So just to, to cover all. It's a, it's a whole revival, nonstop. Order pizza. It is my pleasure to uh, welcome back Brother Will Vest uh, to our congregation to present uh, the Lord's Word today. Um, Brother Will. Thank you. Morning, church. I don't like that I'm getting called out this morning, but my dad's a pastor, my granddad's a pastor, so I'm third generation long-winded. So today, I hope that I can get us out of here relatively quickly, but we are going to be in Matthew 28, and we are going to do something a little weird, so I hope we can all stay together and hang with me today. Um, This was something I prayed about a lot. This was one of the first sermons I ever did, and I think it's a good one, but it's a weird one, so hopefully we can have fun with this and learn about God, which is what we're here to do. Whenever, last time I was here, if most of you remember, we talked about the crucifixion, God on the cross. It's one of the most impactful stories. It's one of the most life-changing stories. And today we get to see the continuation, the sequel to that in the resurrection. Because the story didn't end at the cross. The story continued to the resurrection, to the God-made-man raised again, coming again in his new redeemed body. So neither story is complete without the other. But today I'm going to try to be not necessarily a teacher, but kind of like a facilitator, if that makes sense. I'm going to be like a fire starter or like the thing that puts the DVD in the trailer for us old folks, the VHS and the VHS player. But today... We're here to do one thing, and that one thing is worship God. So turn with me to Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take my word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. So to begin... I'm going to introduce us to a principle, the principle behind this whole sermon, and that has to start with a question. Do you imagine God? 
I know it is a weird question, and you may have never even heard it. I didn't even hear it until I read uh, My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. It's one of the greatest devotionals, if not the greatest Christian devotional. And in it, in the month of February, there's a section where he asks if our imagination of God is starved. He uses the Israelites who stopped imagining God in the wilderness as an example of how people can turn to idols and have idols captivate their minds where God should always be ruling. So are we imagining God? Are we starved? Is our imagination starved? Is our mind solely fixed on God? Where do we see a starved imagination of God? It's pretty easy right here. Me, you, America, the world, take your pick. We see a world turned to evil. We see men and women always grasping for evil in the wrong way of life, it seems. Our minds get distracted by idols, get oppressed and taken over by idols, by what we would rather be thinking about, be imagining, whether it manifests in bills, food, work. We can even think about death more than we think about God. A little factoid for everybody here that you can use for the people who didn't come today as a, I told you so, and look at this cool fact I learned. The word in Hebrew for imagination is yesir. It's compelling because it translates also as distress. Why, why distress and imagination? Those two don't really seem to fit. So in the undergirding nuance of the word, it's used in Jacob and Esau as the form of distress. Jacob, after tricking his father, hearing that Esau is going to kill him, that he's upset, Jacob, it says, had yesir. So what does this mean? It means that he was thinking, if any of us have an older brother or have ever done anything where somebody wanted to do us harm, we just are, we'll start spinning about all that could happen to us. Oh, I don't even know what he's going to do to me. I'm, I'm scared. He's my bigger brother. So it's saying that you're thinking about this thing so fervently, so potently, that it has a physical effect on you, that it can tear you down, that it can cripple you, that it can domineer you. So it's not just imagination in the way we think of like a kitty form of, of thinking about something or creating something. It's this tangible, tied to the heart, emotive response that pulls you. That's what the word Yusir means. So where are some examples of Yusir, which is kind of the key principle of what we're going to talk about today. Genesis 6, 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Who knows what comes after this verse in Genesis 6? You might have heard it. It was a little event called the flood. So whenever the hearts of man, the imagination of man is captivated by evil, God floods the world. God said, okay, i got to restart. Because all these people have allowed their imagination to wander. And it's no longer on me. It's captivated by evil. He took it pretty seriously. So instead of us building a boat and floating on a zoo like Noah did, let's try to save this world so that we don't have that 
happen again. We know it won't happen by water, but I wouldn't like to see it happen by fire either. So let's just take the imagination and try to captivate it again. Isaiah 26.3 Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose yesir, imagination, is stayed on thee. You will be kept by God. You will be in communion with God if your imagination, your mind, is stayed on him. You will keep him in perfect peace. Who wishes that we could do that? Keep God in perfect peace? Psalm 63, 2. It's titled, The Thirsting Soul Satisfied in God. I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. And when I remembered you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. David in sanctuary is saying he sees God. His imagination is fixed on God. And what was Oswald Chambers' main point? Hey, are you starved? Is your imagination starved of God? Well, here David says, I'm thirsting. I know how to quench my thirst. It's my thinking about God. It's by having an influence of God over my mind. Now that we have acquainted ourselves with the concept of Yasir, imagination, we'll get into it. What do we put on this earth to do, first and foremost? We might say, love our neighbor. We might say a whole host of things. But ultimately, at the heart of our religion, is to give God glory. I know it's, it's weird to hear that, well, it's not necessarily love, because why do you love your neighbor? You love your neighbor because it gives God glory. Why don't you lie? Why don't you steal? Why don't you fill in the blank with whatever you're dealing with? For God's glory. You don't do it for yourself. You don't even do it for your neighbor. You do it for God. Because God ordered the world this way. And the right way of living life is how you give God glory. That's what all creation does. We're a unique form of creation that's more complex than, say, the trees, the sky, the sun. That gives him glory completely by its character alone and not necessarily by its action so first there are two types of glory there is intrinsic glory and there is ascribed glory intrinsic glory is exactly what it sounds like it's the glory that God has intrinsic to himself it is God's character it is God's power his dominion his mighty facilities it's everything that makes god cool it's being the best at everything so you're inherently so you inherently have this glory the second is ascribed glory this one's a little more complex but still cool ascribed glory is the glory we give him that we ascribe to him so why should we, or why does this have any hold on imagination? Where are we going? Because like with, say, honey, the purest honey you can get is better honey. The purest gold you can get is higher value gold. So the purest glory that we can give God is the most valuable thing for him, is what we are designed to do. So... How do we get that purer substance? How do we trim all the fat from whatever glory we have? It's by filling in the blanks of our understanding of God. 
is by painting a fuller picture of who God is, what God can do, and his nature. And the best example that I think can really hit home with this principle is in every Christian's testimony, you can typically hear the one thing that's most valuable to them whenever talking about God and why they love God is that he knows me and still he loves me. He knows your full character. He knows the full extent of every thought you've had. And because he knows the full picture of you and still loves you, then it's so the more valuable that he can see all your imperfections and still love you. It's the inverse with God. The more we learn about God, the more we see God, the more we acquaint ourselves with God, the more we get to love Him and see how cool and pure and perfect and beautiful He is. So, ascribed glory and intrinsic glory is talking on the importance of knowing God, fully knowing God. If you don't know everything about God, you won't give him glory for the things he deserves glory for. So let's try to paint a full picture of God. Let's try to reacquaint ourselves with God. We're all Christians here, so that might seem weird, but let's do it. We're going to go to Job 46 first. Then the Lord answered Job out of a storm. Jump down to 15. Behold behemoth, which I made as well as you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold now his strength in his loins and his powers in his muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. Scoot down to Job 41.1. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. For those of you who don't know or just haven't heard the story of Job in a while, Job was a man who suffered probably second only to Jesus. He had everything taken from him. And he was a wealthy man. He had a lot of things, a lot of things of value. He had a big family, big property, big um, flock of sheep and cattle and livestock. And he had all of that taken away in a very short sequence. And then, to top it all off, he had his health taken from him. All these evil things happened to Job in this short sequence. And then all that was left to him was his wife. And his wife said, curse God and die. So this poor, pitiful man holds on and still prays God. But then through lots of Hebrew poetry with 
his friends, he ends up cursing God and questioning God and demands answers from God. And so does God come to him and say, okay, Job, let me tell you why you lost your family. Let me tell you why your livestock failed. Let me tell you why your kids died. That's not what God does. God comes to him in a storm cloud. And then he picks up Job and he puts him in front of behemoth and leviathan these two crazy creatures and he shows them the power of behemoth that it's that its bones are like tubes of bronze and then he shows him leviathan who seems indestructible and fearsome why does god do this why does why does god answer him this way it's because these gigantic monsters these fanciful monsters are so far out of Job's understanding that it actually works. After he sees Leviathan and Behemoth, he hits his knees and says, well, I don't know anything about those organisms. Those organisms could kill me without even thinking about it. How can I question the God who would make those things? I watch Animal Planet and I think, can a gorilla beat up a bear? I don't know. I, gorillas have thumbs. I know that's important, but I love to think about it. I love to go with these scenarios and think how strange and much better than us some animals seems at times. So to see the premier animals that God makes and then going, look, I made these things. They're Behemoth was the first of my creation. Leviathan is indestructible and no man can can mess with him or kill him. That's only something that I could do. And then he says, so think about me. Whenever you look at these things and think about your ineptitude, think about how much greater I am than those things. What God does is he puts these things to captivate Job's imagination Think about these things. Look at these things. And you won't be able to comprehend it. So how dare you question me? I made those things and they're nothing to me. I designed those things. I'm the creator of all things. I'm creator of things that you don't even know. Things that I won't even be able to show you and you comprehend. Job forgot God's true nature whenever he allowed his imagination to wander from God. Other things captivated him. And it seems rightly so. How many people here today, if they lost their kids, their family, their farm, would be thinking about God less because they'd be so overwhelmed with grief and with struggle and not knowing what to do. You'd be worried about losing your house. I just have to pay bills or I just have to work. I just have to get myself out of this hole. Then I'll get back on track. The Bible talks fiercely about commanding your imagination, not allowing your imagination to be captivated by other things. God reveals himself in his creation, as we've seen. And so we can look to creation to see him, see his power, see his design, see a God who's this intricate if you want to imagine God, the easiest thing we can do is sit on our porch and look at a sunset. Sit on our porch and look at the sky. Listen to the cicadas. It might be deafening, but you can do it. 
we can see God in his design and the organisms he made and the power because that's what they're doing. They're giving him glory. He designed them to function, to do things, to bring him glory just in their rattling noise that keeps you up at night. Creation is a means to give God glory through imagination, through thought and meditation. So use it. If it works for Job, who had such great things come against him, why can't it work for us? Because the beautiful part of Job's story is he suffered more than most every man. He had land lost, people lost, family lost, and still God can captivate his imagination. So what comes against me? When have I ever dealt with something like that? So if he can do it for Job, he can definitely do it for us. Imagine if one of us popped a tire on our car on our way home from church today. Our whole day would be centered on that tire. We would go home, tear our clothes off, and throw our Bibles down and just say, Woe is me. I've got to pay a bill. I've got to go get a tire. I've got to drive to the co-op and talk to that guy who chews gum really loud. I don't want to do this. Just my life is so bad. A tire can shake us that much. Eating a bad meal can shake us that much. I'll give you a personal one. Anytime I go through a drive-thru and they mess my order up, I don't know if I'm a Christian after it. I'm so mad that they could screw up my order. And these little things just captivate our imagination, tear us down, domineer us. And we have the God of the universe vying for that spot and somehow we go get over there my Big Mac's wrong how how weak is the human imagination if Job can deal with it if Job with all the suffering he has then maybe next time I order that Big Mac and it's wrong I can say okay I'll think of God I'll think of the beauty of God I'll think of the fact I've got money for a Big Mac or that I have a car to get me through this drive-thru. I'll think of the blessings God gave me. Next turn to Isaiah 43 through 18. The voice of one calling out. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the uneven ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken a voice says call out then he answered what shall I call out all flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like a flower of the field the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it the people are indeed grass the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, messenger of good news. Raise your voice forcefully, Jerusalem, messenger of good news. Raise it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hands and measured the heavens 
with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth with a measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the ways of understanding behold the nations are like a drop from the bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales behold he lifts up the islands like a fine dust even Lebanon is not enough to burn nor its animals enough for a burnt offering all the nations are as nothing before him they are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaning to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him here is our God I dare you take your finger and drop it anywhere in there you'll see one of the coolest things something incomprehensible something amazing something awesome Isaiah 40 is a description of a God so enormous, so cool, so awe-inspiring that our imagination explodes like a firework. He says, look at these creatures I've made in Job. Don't they impress you, scare you, baffle you? They are nothing next to me. They are nothing compared to me. Imagine how greater my strength is when you look at the strength of Behemoth. Whenever you see how impossibly indestructible Leviathan is think of the God of all time imagine how much more durable I am think about the water he can hold in his hands like we said in Isaiah just his hands well I say he could probably have an ocean in his hands well I say he could probably have all the oceans on the planet in his hands well, I say he could have all moisture in all the universe in his hands. Okay. And he's probably got two of them. So we see this amazing concept that God lays out there where he says, who can measure the water that I can hold in my hand? Think about it. Try to do it. It'll stall your brain out, but it'll be fun. It'll give you more glory about God. It'll make your life seem less consequential. It will make your problems seem much lighter whenever you know that there is a God who has measured the dust and the mountains and the hills and who holds water. And how much water could God hold in his hands? It's so amazing who God is, the power of God, the enormity of God. What he's doing is he's trying to command our mind because he's so far outside of what our mind could ever think of there's so much for us to think about for us to comprehend meditate on and to worship about God it will be weighty kabod which is glory glory means kabod which means weighty thinking about God it's a weighty task it's something that will drive us down so we've reacquainted ourselves with God we've seen in his creation who he is we've seen what he says about himself his nature his enormity in Isaiah 
So now let's read Matthew 28 again. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothes as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said, Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly, and I love this, with fear and great joy, and ran to report it to his disciples. This sounds a lot like that Yasir, doesn't it? They ran away with fear and great joy. I wonder what was going through their minds whenever they see this angel come out of the sky like lightning sitting on a rock in a tomb of God and he's no longer there he's no longer a God that dies he's a God that beats death one of the best things in Luke 24:12 it's Peter's reaction but Peter got up and ran to the tomb stooping and looking in he saw the linen wrappings only and he went away to his home marveling at what had happened so how cool is this Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and Peter whenever God beat death rose again Think about all that they were thinking about. This Jesus guy who I have been following, who I gave up my life for, who I gave up my property for, who I left my family for to follow him, he actually is who he said he was. He actually was God. He wasn't just a carpenter. He wasn't just a friend. He wasn't just a prophet or a good teacher. He was actually God. It's so amazing. So let's actually imagine now. That's what we're called to do. That's what the whole sermon's about. So let me act as our collective imagination for a minute. First, our imagination would probably wander into the halls of heaven. It would be thinking about the angels and God and the heavenly host and all the beauty of heaven and God and who he is. So in heaven we find Jesus, main character of our story. It's where he should be. Something about Jesus that I hadn't thought about until I did this sermon was he would have been in heaven seeing every crucifixion that ever was. He would have seen the indignity of the cross. He would have seen the pain of the cross. He would have seen the torment of the cross. And he still came. Knowing that, seeing that, he still decided to come for me and you. Then, 
he decides to come to earth and does great things, miracles, heals people, preaches. And what do we do? We decide to kill him. He comes to save us. And we decide, okay, we'll give you a cross for all your effort. So we find Jesus on a cross crying to God, his Father. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, where are you? Dad, where are you at? Father, I'm alone. That's the true horror of the cross. It's not that Jesus had nails driven in his in his wrists and in his feet. It's not the whipping. It's not the the crown of thorns. It's not the mocking or the jeering. It's that for the first time ever, Jesus was away from his Father, God, taking the full punishment for my and your sins. Then, what happens? Jesus dies. God dies. How befuddling. Then, after he dies, darkness falls. The world is encapsulated in darkness. And then, in the darkness, no doubt, there were demonic voices singing, crying, rejoicing. We won! Jesus is dead. We killed Jesus. We're the winning team. God died. Satan thinks he's won. Everything worked, according to me. I was in the garden. I made man fall. I tricked them. They chose my intellect over God's promise and his love in the garden. I then doomed the whole world. I forced God's hand to flood the world. I captivated all of man's mind, save one family. Now what have I done? I killed God. I've won. I've always won. This world is mine. I tainted the creation. I got the creation killed, and now I killed the creator. Victory is mine. And it always was. Then... The darkness is broken. And what is it broken by? Lightning streaming from the sky. And as Satan watches on in disbelief, an angel roars down from heaven and opens a tomb of God. I love thinking about Satan and all the demons. Whenever they walked, saw that angel walking to the tomb, how terrifying. It's the greatest plot twist in history that Jesus defeated death. That death no longer has its victory. Then Jesus does in fact have his victory. He says, I will never die again. I will be alive forevermore. In my hands 
are the keys of life and Hades. I will be back on my throne. I have purchased my bride with my blood. My victory was inevitable. I am who I am. I am the great I am. I am indestructible, incomprehensible, irresistible, and invincible. The heavens cannot contain my glory. Death cannot consume me. Life cannot last me. Every tongue will confess that I am the great I am. Every tongue will confess that I am the God of gods. Jesus, our Lord, has risen and beaten death. How amazing. How does that ever get pushed to the side by my worldly problems? That story of God, how? How does a tire, how does food, how does my family plug in bigger problems? Say you're broke, say you're homeless, say you're hungry, serious problems, even that. How can those things contend with a God who beat death, took the victory from death, and is reigning forever with victory? How can our imagination not be always captivated by that? If we go out from today, from this Sunday, from every Sunday, and we have trouble imagining God, seriously take a second and actually do it. Like, I'm, th- this isn't something that I want to be vague or mystic about. I'm actually saying imagine God. Sit down and think of the God who saved you. Because he's everything we need. Whatever you're dealing with, no one here is living a perfect life. Whatever we're dealing with, whatever we need, whatever we want even, we can find in God. You might say, I'm busy. I have a heavy work week this week. I can't do it. I'm worried about food for this week. I'm worried about bills. I don't know how I'm going to pay them. Do you have bills? Do you have a job that doesn't pay enough? Money problems? If you do, imagine Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. Imagine you were one of the 5,000 who was fed from Jesus or was given manna from heaven, a promised land flowing with milk and honey. Need more? Okay. Imagine a God who created a ball in the universe that is completely and utterly all resource. He created animals to be eaten, filled rivers to be drank, When you get in your car to go to your home to eat lunch, imagine the creator who made all of it possible. If you don't have any of those things, nothing, you're poor on the street and hungry, you don't have anything but the breath in your lungs, thank him for that. You didn't do anything to earn it, you can't do anything to get more of it. Because he designed the world this way, it is a blessing to you. Maybe you are terrified of COVID or all the sickness in the world. You have an illness. You have a family member with an illness. Think about Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Think about seeing a cripple man every day you go to work. And all you know about him is that he's crippled. And that he's pitiful. He's broken. 
and hurting. And then one day, as you're accustomed to, you walk by him. But today he's not alone. There's somebody with him who says, get up and walk. How much more would your aches and pains lessen? How much more can God dull what we deal with? Lastly, if you're rich and healthy, you don't have any of those problems, you don't have any money problems, you don't have any illness, you're not worried about food, you're not worried about a house, you're not worried about bills. I know something that domineers your imagination, death. It comes to all men. It's a great equalizer. Regardless of wealth, health, or prosperity, death will come to you. And if you're thinking about death, imagine an empty tomb and a God who rose from it. Think of an earthquake and an angel wrapped in light. Imagine a death without its sting and a Savior who conquered it. Imagine God. Paint the full picture of God. And you'll find all that you need, all that you're looking for, all that you want. He's there. He is enough. I I didn't want to come today and do a historical account of the resurrection or even necessarily teach you the resurrection. Because even if I proved to you, even if I proved to everybody here about the resurrection, about the validity of God beating death, in Matthew 28, 11 through 15, what we read before, in that section, we hear about guards. And what did those guards do who saw Jesus rise, who acted like dead men whenever the angel came? They said, how do we cover this up? We need to lie about this. We need to make sure this doesn't get out. So the priest said, well, we'll pay y'all. Say that the disciples came and stole him from the tomb. Not that Jesus actually rose. So they were there, saw it, and still didn't believe. Because their imaginations weren't captivated by God. Their hearts weren't captivated by God. They didn't meditate on what they truly had seen. So even if I came here today and proved it to you through apologetics, historical accounts, you still might not believe. Because you don't know the picture of God. Just like when the Israelites and the world had its imagination fixed on evil or fixed on idols, the guards had their imagination fixed on money, fixed on wealth, how to cover this up. And if you don't know if anything about Yusir, about imagination, about thinking of God is valuable, then I say look at them. They saw the power of it. They said, we can't let this get out. If this gets out, it'll burn like wildfire. We cannot let the message of God get out. So why are we suppressing it? We have the complete word of God. We have the account. We have the gospel. We have a relationship with him. And still we struggle to think about him. How about we value it as much as people who were willing to cover it up? 
Think about God. Meditate on God. Imagine God. Because the closer you get to the full picture of God, the better Christian you'll be. Everybody wants a book on how to live life. All the answers for my problems. That's it. Feel in God. Know God better. It's the cure-all for everything. It's the perfect band-aid. If you work on that, everything will fall in place. He's everything you need. Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Jireh, fill in the blank. He is amazing. He is wonderful. Let's not take him for granted. What he did for us, let's treat it as the most valuable thing that has ever happened. Not just some book, not just some day in our family tradition to go to church, show up and leave. Let's treat it as the world-changing message that it is. Let's pray. Father.